This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black on Federal News Network. One-on-one interviews with the people who've left a lasting imprint on the government and the nation. Now your host, Aileen Black. Welcome to Leaders and Legend Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today our guest is Sarah Hess. Sarah is currently the West Coast Director of Silicon Valley Defense Group. Silicon Valley Defense Group is a 501c3 nonprofit seeking to align and connect people, capital, and ideas that ensure allied democracies retain a durable techno-security advantage. Previous to her role at SDVG, Sarah served as the deputy lead to launch the NATO Innovation Fund, a billion-euro venture capital fund modeled off of Incotel. Sarah completed her undergraduate studies in political science from Stanford University and was awarded the J.E. Wallace Stirring Award for Scholastic Achievement at Stanford. That's amazing. She's lived abroad four times and has traveled to 54 company, uh, countries. So first off, I am so honored to have you on this show today, Sarah. So welcome to Leaders and Legend. Thank you for having me. So, Sarah, I got to ask you, uh, it's our standard question up front, um, you know, what what is your favorite leadership style, or, or do you want to describe leadership styles that you feel are most effective? Yeah, I would say um, one of the leadership styles that I've admired over the years is someone who really leads with a lot of empathy in the sense of they get to know the people who are subordinate to them. They understand uh, the challenges that they face in their role, and they really, as a leader, try and make it as easy as possible for the people below them to get their job done and to get their job done in a really effective manner. Uh, So I had a a boss uh, previously at the agency um, whose name I will not say, but who was really incredible at this, where she managed both up and down in the sense of she empowered her team to be us as, as her team, to be as effective as possible while also dealing herself with the bureaucracy and all the challenges that come with working at a large federal institution, um, but also put us forward and uh, really celebrated our wins uh, and helped us be a very, very effective team while we were there. So when you approach leadership roles and you have different types of audiences, do you think a leader needs to alter their approach depending upon if it's all men, all women, uh, you know, a, a different stress levels? I would say for sure. And I would I would more, I guess, pivot to different types of industries in the sense of at Silicon Valley Defense Group, I work with a lot of VCs. I work with a lot of startups and then the national security and defense ecosystem. And these groups are very different. VCs um, are obviously trying to make large bets on the companies of the future and trying to figure out who are going to build a billion dollar business. Startup founders are really just trying to run through walls. They're trying to create a new industry, create a new company that has never existed before and grow it into a massive business versus the national security and defense ecosystem has different incentives where it is diplomacy and it's these large bureaucracies and you're dealing with um, the internal politics of these large organizations. So I think the way that you approach any of these groups really depends on the audience and knowing how to talk to VCs, knowing how to talk to startup founders, and knowing how to talk to the national security and defense ecosystem, and really understand where they're coming from, being empathetic to their 
history and the the incentives uh, under which they operate, um, and then really tailoring your message and tailoring your asks and tailoring what you're trying to get from them uh, in a way that's very specific to the environment that they are operating in. So let's take a step back. You talked about a leader that you had while you were at the agency that really led with empathy. Yeah. Um, were there any aha moments when you were working for a leader that was a lesson learned that you think all leaders should know? Yeah, I mean, I would say I would say I've learned from leaders both in the positive sense and the negative sense. I've admired some leaders in the past who have really enabled myself or enabled other on other members of my team to really be incredibly successful at the same time. I've also had some leaders where I've learned what not to do, and I've learned what type of a leader I don't want to be moving forward. And some of that um, are people who are do as I say, not as I do, um, lacking in clear, concise, direct communication, um, and really not, not really moving the team forward in a positive way or creating uh, an unhealthy uh, work work environment. Uh, so I think I think I've learned both both from the positive aspects of seeing leaders who I who I admire, who I want to be, um, but then also learned what I don't want to be and learning what not to do moving forward. So um, you work now for S. DBG, and I went onto the website, and it says the United States is lagging in global technical security competition and lacks effective policy, education, and coordination to compete with its rivals. Um, so, when you're, you know, looking at different innovative startups, uh, when you look at their leaders, is there a leadership quality that you see in successful startups that are helping with national security? Yeah, I would say overall, one of the biggest, best qualities of a startup founder is just the ability to run through walls and being unrelenting uh, towards the pursuit of a goal. Because fundamentally, especially in the national security space, selling to the DOD and building products in national security is just hard. And a lot of that has to do with the DOD not being the easiest customer to work with. Uh, so you you're in for a slog if you're building a company in the national security space. I believe like the fastest um, fastest time to a program of record is three to five years. I don't know if you saw, but last week uh, the Wall Street Journal came out with an article that basically said there's been $100 billion worth of venture capital dollars that have gone into defense and dual-use startups over the past three, four years. Um, and the estimated revenue coming out of the federal government is something around three to five billion dollars per year. So fundamentally, these metrics, these numbers, just don't work out for the success of these startups as of now. And I think for defense, there's a giant question mark as to whether or not these companies will be successful. So, in terms of what you look for in a company founder in this space, I think are you relentless and are you willing to create an industry that hasn't necessarily really existed over the past thirty years? Because the only successful exit in the defense tech space over the past 30 years has been Palantir, and that's been the only IPO. So you're looking at this space, you're saying, I think there's a market, but I'm going to run through walls to get there. So, you know, also in, in uh, the Wall Street Journal was uh, recently an article, uh, and it's, 
you know, it's it's no secret that many current and former um, national security officials believe that DOD needs to leverage the innovation economy, especially venture-backed companies. And so what we're seeing is a lot of DOD officials and IC officials leaving public service and joining VC firms. So why do you think that's happening, and, and do you think that's good for national security? I think it's neither positive nor negative. I think a lot of people spend time in government, want to serve, and then want to go to the the private sector and serve in a different a different manner. Um, and I think one thing that I at least observed when I was in government is that the government needs to leverage the private sector better because a lot of the innovation, uh, a lot of specifically engineering talent is in the private sector. So in order to be successful in the future, especially with global strategic competition, you need to take advantage of the private sector and what people are building there. Um, I think, yeah, the article that came out talking about uh, people leaving public sector to join VC firms and being advisors on startups, I think that's also quite natural because they, they've they spent their careers work, working on defense, working on national security. They are some of the preeminent experts in this space, understanding what DOD's needs are, understanding what the IC's needs are, understanding how to work the bureaucracy within those buildings uh, so it's only natural that they then go to the private sector and are able to help these companies and help these VC firms understand this world of national security that I think a lot of people who aren't in D.C. don't really understand. I'm speaking with Sarah Hess, West Coast Director of Silicon Valley Defense Group. After the break, we'll discuss the effects of leadership on culture. We're listening to Leaders and Legend on Government. On Federal News Network, I'm Elaine Black. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking with Sarah Hess, West Coast Director of Silicon Valley Defense Group. Sarah, before we get talking about culture and leadership, I got to follow up on something you said during the last segment. We were talking about, um, you know, uh, as people move and move into industry from high positions within the government, joining VC firms, and the difficulty. I think the word you use, slogging, uh, and relentless uh, for good leaders in that. How do you think we can change that dynamic so that it's it's easier for companies to be patriotic and help our nation, especially with what's going on with generative AI? I think that the ship might be turning when it comes to DOD and the IC's acceptance of private sector, specifically VC-backed startups that are building the national security space. I think one of the talking points I like to say is 10 years ago, there was no front door to the DOD, and now there's so many. Um, And that comes with a lot of the innovation units that have been stood up. There's the Defense Innovation Unit, there's AFWorks, there's SoftWorks, there's the Marine Innovation Unit, Naval X, et cetera. I can go on. Uh, there's also InQtel on, on the intelligence community side, and they're standing up an intelligence community innovation unit as well. I think I think there's the recognition within government that there's the need to capitalize more on private sector innovation and where these startups are innovating. Um, but I think it just takes time. It's slow. The DoD is slow. The IC is slow to change culture, uh, to change how you view these risky new companies called startups that are trying to build hypersonics when 
Northrop has been the only supplier of hypersonics in the past. How do you accept the fact that this new unproven company is coming in and telling you that they can deliver these new capabilities uh, and you trust them? Uh, so I think, I think, again, like there's some incentive issues within the government in terms of how do you get new and emerging technologies into the government? How do you accept the risk that comes from getting these technologies from startups that maybe have not proven themselves and maybe don't have a long track record of success? But also at the same time, I think there's an overall recognition that in global strategic competition, specifically with China, the Chinese are innovating very quickly. The U.S. also needs to innovate just as quickly. Um, and you're going to have to take more risks when it comes to uh, accepting the fact that a lot of these startups are at the cutting edge of these technology areas. Um, and in order to compete, we might need to rely on this company called Anderol that's been around for only five, six years that's built, building counter UAS systems. And maybe maybe that's actually the best move for us moving forward. So you, um, I, I put a, definitely want to talk about China, but I need to ask you, you the bureaucracy point that you made yeah. earlier. So recently the White House released an executive order. And I know folklore says there's like 400 pages long, but I think it's a little less than 100 with all of yep. the attachments. But that's just one of like 100 that have recently come out in regards to policy or directives, um, which is making it even more complex for the leaders within the government about how to um, engage with this innovation quickly. And, and the same thing with the startups. And I was startup days of of Oracle, <laughs> startup yeah. days of, of VMware, startup days of EMC, startup days of Google Cloud. Uh, this is much more complex because of the concern about how to leverage this technology, how to how to unleash the genie and not have a bad outcome, right? Yeah. So how, how can a company and a leader who is at a startup right now navigate this very even more complicated than normal environment? I would say, well, first of all, I, I'm always a big advocate of having a lot of conversations with people in government, with other people who have done it before, um, with VCs who have maybe seen like past, past histories and past cycles of what's happened in the past to be able to give advice about how this might play, um, play forward in the future. I would say when it comes to the AIEO and a lot of different regulations that are coming out, one thing that I think Silicon Valley is looking for is more regulatory leadership from Washington when it comes to actually clear rules of the road so that startups and companies know how to operate within that. Um, I mean, like, this has been an issue with crypto in the past um, and, and other technologies where, okay, just establish the rules of the game so that these companies can come in and play the game and potentially succeed at the game. Uh, I would also say overall, just um, in terms of how the government can work better with startups, I think that there needs to be, specifically within DOD, IC, the national security community, there needs to be more flexible funding to be able to go to these new technologies that are developing very quickly that maybe the DOD doesn't understand at this moment in time, but 
are developing so quickly that if you if you want to be able to take advantage of them, you're going to have to be able to move quickly. Um, so AI is the perfect example of that where you can't – the appropriation cycles are just so slow for, like, the speed at which AI is moving that there potentially needs to be more flexible funding within the government to procure these technologies faster as they develop at speeds that I think – specifically people in D.C. are not necessarily comfortable with because it's moving so fast. Let's talk about culture and its effect on, you know, you you, you talked about the bureaucracy and, and a little bit about the culture within the government, which is this big organization that yeah. doesn't really, you know, isn't designed to move fast, actually. Democracy yeah. Yeah. isn't, and, and, and I, I am so proud to be an American and, and proud that we are a democracy, but democracy is not designed to be efficient or effective, right? So how how can culture and leaders, and, and I, I guess I'm going to go back to uh, one of my favorite um, uh, um, strategists or, or business leader, um, Peter Drucker's uh, a legendary um, quote, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And I don't think he meant that strategy was unimportant, rather that a powerful and empowering culture is a sure route to success uh, of an organization to adopting and changing. Um, do you agree with that thought? And um, and what do you think we can do to, to help affect some change or leaders can do within the government to help change things so that they can move faster? Yeah, I would say I have a couple routes I can take this. So First of all, when it comes to culture within the national security ecosystem, specifically within acquisitions for these emerging technologies, I think there's definitely been a history of being risk averse. Um, And again, that comes down to these startups are unproven. We don't know if they can deliver, which is true. But also, I mean, like if you look at the history of Silicon Valley, we've built some of the biggest and greatest companies out of startups that maybe at the time we didn't know if they could deliver. Um, So I think overall, the DoD has been quite risk averse, uh, where like if you're a program executive office, you're probably not going to risk your promotion if you go to a Lockheed or you go to a Raytheon or you go to a Northrop, because that's the way that business has been done for the last 30 years. But if you're going to a crossbow, if you're going to a Venus Aerospace, if you're going to a Hermes, then that's an unproven startup and you're potentially risking your promotion if you uh, award a, a contract to them instead of the big players. So I think some of it needs to come with PEO-driven innovation where you are rewarded more on results and you're rewarded more on uh or you're at least enabled to take a risk, um, which I don't think has necessarily been the case in the past. I would also say in terms of, I think there's this recognition and like you can look at the history of defense innovation to see how things have been changing. So you had a lot of defense innovators back during the Cold War times. And then in 1992, there was an event called The Last Supper, Um, where the Secretary of Defense brought together the leaders of all these defense companies and basically told them that you had to consolidate or die um, because the DOD wasn't going to spend as much money as they had been during the Cold War. 
so they couldn't sustain uh, sustain adequate revenues to keep these companies alive, which is which basically led to the current situation that we've been in, where there have been five, six large prime contractors who have uh, been awarded most of the contracts um, and been building for the DoD. And that's been basically global war on terror days over the past 30 years. And I think what we're seeing now, and the CTO of Palantir calls this the first breakfast, where it's this recognition that there is now there are now more conflicts going on in the world. There's more global strategic competition. And instead of fighting terrorists in Afghanistan um, and fighting in Iraq, we have global strategic competition against China. We have Russia invading Ukraine. We have Israel and Gaza um, going to war. We have the Iranians sending drones uh, against U.S. Uh, bases in Jordan. So there's this recognition that the way that we have conducted warfare over the past 30 years is probably not going to be the way that we conduct warfare over the next 30 years. And a lot of that comes down to a tritable, the future is going to be a tritable autonomous systems um, amongst other other emerging technologies. Um, and I think, yeah, I think there's this recognition that things have to change. So the culture within the DOD is also going to have to change with that. I'm speaking with Sarah Hess, West Coast Director of Silicon Defense Group. Coming up next, we'll talk about being a leader that is trying to lead through change. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black, and today I'm talking with Sarah Hess, West Coast Director of Silicon Valley Defense Group. Sarah, you have had some very important roles in driving innovation. Um, in the age of this rapid technology advancement, the landscape of warfare is evolving at brace, breathtaking um, you know, pace. I think you brought it up in the last segment, actually, um, especially with the challenges leveraging innovation and figuring out how to, especially with the programs of record, how to insert generative AI to keep up with the competition. Can you share what it's like driving uh, you know, innovation for DOD and the IC community and any advice you might have? Yeah, I would say that innovation and trying to change culture within DOD is generally quite hard. I think there's there have been a lot of, I, I think I said it earlier, a lot of uh, innovation units that have popped up that exist now um, that are all trying to do really good work when it comes to getting new innovative technologies into the DoD and to the IC. Uh, the difficulty is obviously transitioning that from an already teeny uh, like experiment into more of an ANS program of record long-term contracting. So I think one of the things that I see and I worry about sometimes with this uh, – the emergence of all these funds related to American dynamism, related to global resilience, related to defense tech, is there's been all this money that's been pumped into these startups that are innovating in the national security space. They're getting a lot of short-term contracts like SIBRs, SIBR Phase 1s, Phase 2s, Phase 3s, um, getting DIU OTAs, etc., but these are non-recurring revenue contracts, and they're already T&E dollars. And eventually, 
in order to be successful, these companies need to transition into ANS money. They need to transition into program of record, long-term sustaining, high-dollar uh, revenue. And I haven't seen that yet. So I think a lot of people are very well-intentioned when it comes to developing this ecosystem. Silicon Valley Defense Group does a lot of work to try and convene people and bring people together to develop this uh, defense tech ecosystem. But overall, I think the concern that I have long term is, is the DOD and is the Hill going to be able to move the ship fast enough to actually get these technologies into the government um, and make them long term sustaining? Or are we just going to keep on doing business the way that we've been doing it for the past 30 years? So what I see as being the biggest concern is that our adversaries don't have this challenge of bringing in innovation in a quick way. So they're able to sort of like get ahead of the OODA loop and, and start, you know, inserting these new innovative technologies quicker because they don't have the bureaucracies that we necessarily have in this country. So when you're looking at the diamonds in the rough, these small companies that, you know, are, are something that could really make it, move the needle, make a difference... Um, what do you believe could be the biggest disruptors out there that we may be missing out on for national security? I think people are building in a lot of different spaces. And I think uh, when it comes to tech areas, I think that there's going to be a lot of disruption in generative AI, as you said, um, in hypersonics, in uh, biotech, in uh, like communications technologies, logistics, et cetera. But one of the technologies I think is going to be of particular importance moving forward are autonomous systems. Uh, and that comes, that's autonomous drones, uh, autonomous land vehicles, autonomous maritime. We saw this week with the Iranian drone attacks against U.S. troops in Jordan, how there's the future of warfare in a way is asymmetric, where you can have, and the Houthis in Yemen, you can have these small drones that cost a couple tens of thousand dollars, maybe a hundred thousand dollars, uh, really disrupting in, in the Houthis in Yemen's case, shipping, global shipping, and with the Iranian drones against US troops really attacking what the US has felt very safe and secure in in terms of US bases um, internationally. And what we saw at least with the uh, the Houthi drones is the U.S. response to that was to launch multimillion-dollar missiles, and I think uh, I think in order to counter against these autonomous systems, we're going to have to come in with low-cost, attributable autonomous systems as well, um, and basically be able to fight fire with fire. Now, you you bring up our NATO alliance partners a little bit in in some of these hotspots around the world. And you led a pretty major role of driving innovation with within NATO. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Um, when I was at NATO in 2022, um, I joined what had already been started before before I was there. But NATO was launching two innovation initiatives, and they now have launched two innovation initiatives, the Defense Innovation Accelerator for the North Atlantic, um, or DIANA, and the NATO Innovation Fund. The NATO Innovation Fund is NATO's version of Incutel, while Diana is NATO's version of DARPA slash DIU. Uh, so the NATO Innovation Fund is a billion euro fund investing over a 15-year period into early stage dual-use deep technologies uh, versus Diana is 
NATO's version of DARPA slash DIU. So NATO comes out with a strategic direction. The challenge managers uh, come up with challenges for the strategic direction. Startups apply, uh, they join, and then they get access to this network of test centers and accelerator sites where they can really develop these technologies. And the hope is for both these initiatives that the alliance really gets to capitalize on this tech development and hopefully gets to uh, adopt adopt the technologies that are that are developed within either Diana or invested in uh, within within the NATO Innovation Fund. Do you see um, you know the world getting to be a smaller place, and it's more important maybe with a programs like Diana to partner with organizations like Incutel or DARPA or uh, to find solutions that can be used across our NATO alliance partners? Yeah, I would say um, I would say there's a number of initiatives when it comes to the Quad, AUKUS. Um, there's obviously the Five, Five Eyes Alliance. NATO is launching Diana and the NATO Innovation Fund. I think there's a lot of areas for the U.S. to work with partners and allies to really uh, multiply the effect of tech innovation. Um, I think the U.S. has done a good job so far in terms of working with these allies and partners and really trying to capitalize not only on talent that exists uh, throughout these multiple alliances, um, but also be able to take the best technologies and really expand them and and have them apply to all these different countries um, so that they can really take advantage of all the innovations that are happening. So you brought up talent. Um, Position perfectly my next question. The biggest challenge in any tech company in the U.S. today, along with the U.S. government, is recruiting tech talent. So I have read so many articles about this talent war and and have experienced it myself. What do you think the government can be done or, or be doing to help train, recruit, you know, tech talent? I mean, China, let's face it, starts teaching their kids like in elementary school that and, and they know what their job's going to be very early in life and yep. they become experts. But here in the US, we don't have those types of very pointed programs. And the lack of talent out there is alarming, let alone the lack of talent that is has a diverse background. Yep. So what do you think we can be doing to help nurture our our tech talent here in the United States? Well I think that question has a twofold answer. One is fixing immigration policy. So really being able to enabling U.S. tech companies in addition to the U.S. government, amongst others, to really bring in the best and the brightest from other countries. Because I think that's one of the U.S. has always been a beacon where people want to come to America because it is the land of opportunity and there is all these different opportunities to be very successful. So I think it's one is fixing immigration policy to make it easier for these top uh, top tier talented individuals to come into the country. And then I think second of all, obviously like STEM is incredibly important, um, increasing access to STEM education. But I think there's there's a growing recognition that college education per se is not necessarily uh, what is what is needed to to grow the best talent. I think that there's coding programs, there's uh, trade uh, trade programs that people can really learn 
marketable skills um, and focus on a specific area as an 18-year-old uh, and really like take take that education and bring it to a company and really be a specialist in machinery, a specialist in coding, a specialist in some specific tech area um, without necessarily having a broad liberal arts education, but also having a very specific trade education in a certain area that uh, the U.S. needs and these companies need to succeed moving forward. I'm talking with Sarah Hess, West Coast Director of Silicon Valley Defense Group. Next, we'll find out what Sarah's advice to the next generation of federal leaders. You're listening to Leaders in Legend and Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black. Welcome back to Leaders in Legend and Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking with Sarah Hess, West Coast Director of Silicon Valley Defense Group. So, Sarah, Today you work at uh, Silicon Valley Defense Group. Tell us about that and and why you left the government to go into the world of VC. Yeah, so I left my time in the CIA uh, to go to NATO to help launch the NATO Innovation Fund and the Defense Innovation Accelerator for the North Atlantic. That was never a long term uh, a long term gig for me. I was I was in Brussels. I wanted to come back to the U.S. Um, so came back to California, ended up getting recruited for this job at Silicon Valley Defense Group. Uh, and SVDG is a it's a largely convening mechanism. So we bring together capital providers, so largely VCs, but also private equity and banks with defense and dual use startups and then the national security and defense ecosystem. And the goal is really to bring people together and have curated events um, with representatives from all these groups attending uh, to have discussions about what really needs to change within DOD, what needs to change within the national security ecosystem to help the ecosystem establish what we call emerging tech ready- readiness, which is basically this uh, this state where the U.S. is ready to capitalize on emerging technologies as new conflicts come up, as things change, as the world changes. The DOD and the intelligence community are ready to pull on private capital, pull on the startup community, pull on these new and emerging technologies that are being developed and leverage them to deal with the emerging challenges that we see um, popping up around the world and we anticipate popping up around the world moving forward. So, Sarah, let's take a step back. Um, Where did you grow up and how did you end up with a career dedicated to national security? So I grew up in the Bay Area. I grew up in a, a town called Los Altos um, in the South Bay. Uh, it's the heart of Silicon Valley. Everyone around me worked in tech. All my parents, my parents worked in tech. All my friends' parents worked in tech. Uh, I ended up going to Duke for a period of time, but then I transferred to Stanford and I graduated from Stanford. So obviously, everyone everyone went into tech. Um, but during my time at Stanford, I ended up taking a class called. Emerging Security Challenges in a Changing World. And that really changed my perspective in terms of what I wanted to do with my life. I had originally thought that I might want to go into tech or go into American politics, but that class really convinced me that I wanted to go into national security. So I actually got my job in the CIA in 2014 when I graduated from college it did take them about five to six years to actually get me my clearance and get me in the building. So I didn't actually start at the CIA until 2020. Um, 
And in the meantime, I worked for Apple. I traveled for a bit. I worked for a tech lobbying firm in D.C. Um, but really, that class was the main thing that led me to pursuing a career in national security because I, they had guest speakers. They were all fantastic. Um, and it really... It really led me to want to pursue a career at this the intersection of national security and technology. So you had guest speakers that really inspired you. Yeah. Can you talk about that? Yeah. I mean, I would say the specific speaker that I remember um, amongst like Joe Felter, uh, Martha Crenshaw, Amy Ziegart, who are all Stanford affiliated and fantastic individuals, uh, was a... A former CIA analyst, then turned uh, startup founder, whose name was Tim Junio. And he won't know who I am, but that's fine. Um, but he started a, he co-founded a cybersecurity startup uh, that was called Cadium, that then got rebranded as Expanse, that then got bought by Palo Alto Networks. And his lecture on cybersecurity was really the thing that drove me to want to enter national security and specifically want to enter CIA as he has, he had previous experience at CIA and it was just, it was incredible what people could do with computers and the risks and the challenges and the threats that came with specifically um, based on his lecture, cybersecurity. But obviously there's a lot of emerging technologies that are out there and there's a lot of challenges and threats, but also opportunities that come with those. You described a little bit about your career path and, and, and what inspired you, but there is a listener out there. Uh, I'm actually, my, my son, number one job when he graduates from William & Mary that he would like to is work for the agency. Um, if you were to be talking to my son, Michael, what advice would you have to uh, follow in your career path? Yeah, well... A, I would say that the agency is a fantastic place. It's full full of uh, incredibly smart, incredibly patriotic individuals who are dedicating their lives to national security, um, specifically uh, specifically intelligence, uh, which is CIA's bread and butter. Um, based on my experience, I would say apply sooner rather than later because because it, it could take some time. Um, but also, but also, I would I would really encourage him to apply there. I think being in the building, um, meeting the people who are working on these problems is really an incredible experience. And what I appreciate about DOD and the intelligence community and all the VCs and startup founders who are building in this space is they're really driven by mission and they're really driven by something that's larger than themselves. There's obviously, if they were driven by money, there's a lot of other career and career opportunities they could be doing that would probably make them a lot of money a lot faster. But there's this bigger picture, um, more mission-driven pull to the national security space. Um, and I think, I mean, in my experience, it attracts some of my favorite people in the world. Also, working for the federal government, do you feel that early on you get exposure to larger, bigger jobs in support of the mission than maybe you did at first in industry? Yes, I would definitely say so. I would say a lot of new analysts, new um, director of operations folks, they really give you a lot of responsibility early on. Um, and I think that's that's great because it's you're really, I think you're really dedicated to the mission, but 
you're also given the opportunity to perform. Uh, and I would say that that is that's one of the benefits of CIA and specifically in, as an analyst when I was there. Um, we were briefing a couple months in and you're you're becoming one of the preeminent experts on a specific area. Um, and I think that's a really incredible opportunity for someone who's who's young, who's it might be their first job. Sarah, you've had so much success in your career. What work or project are you most proud of? Yeah, I would say the easiest one to point to on that is probably my work at NATO, helping to launch the NATO Innovation Fund and the Defense Innovation Accelerator for the North Atlantic. And I think some of that comes down to it being a very tangible thing that didn't exist before and it is now out in the open and now exists. And I think the jury is still out in terms of how successful will it be? Will it be viewed in a positive light um, in a, from a long-term perspective? Uh, but I think it was something that didn't exist back in 2019. Uh, and then the team before me started started the development of it in 2020. But now it exists, and now it's out in the open, and now it's operating. So I think it's really exciting to see something go from nothing. It's basically, what in Silicon Valley speak, it's the zero to one. Um, and that was my first zero to one experience. So that was really an incredible opportunity. Your career and success have truly been inspirational. Um, an amazing uh, career for, uh, you know, as young as you are, you have accomplished so much. Any pearls of wisdom you would have for the next generation or what you would tell your 18 year old self? I would, I mean, what I would tell my 18 year old self is it's all going to be okay. It's okay that you don't know exactly what you want to do for the rest of your life. Everyone's just kind of figuring it out as you go along. Um, I think one thing that I've really done is I've taken advantage of the opportunities that have popped up for me. Um, I've, I've been quite flexible. I've been willing to quit my job, pack up my apartment, fly to Brussels on a Saturday and start my next job on a Sunday. Um, and I think really like I've pursued really interesting opportunities and I've been willing to say yes to a lot of things um, as they've come up. And I think that's that's led me to where I am now. Um, I mean, I think I'm still figuring out what I want to be when I grow up. But at the same time, I've been really willing to capitalize on really interesting opportunities as they come to me. And I've been willing to say yes. And I've been very flexible and willing to, um, yeah, pack up my life and move across the country, move across the ocean. Um, and it's worked out for me so far. You've been listening to Leaders and Legend in Government. My guest today has been Sarah Hess. Sarah, I want to thank you for your years of public service and what you're doing today in the VC community and your dedication to this nation's competitiveness on the technology world stage. I also want to thank you for joining us today and sharing your personal journey and some very seriously valuable advice. Thank you for having me. I'm Elaine Black. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black. Subscribe to this podcast at Apple Podcasts or Podcast One.